Well, as I said earlier, we're still in Ephesians chapter 2 in this uh, very iconic passage about our salvation by grace through faith. And we made a big, big, big deal last week going through verses 8 and 9, how our salvation is completely of God and His grace. That there's nothing that we could ever do to bribe or earn or trick or deceive our way into heaven. But God is, because God is God, how could he be bought off? How could he be swindled or cheated? How could we somehow get through the the metal detectors in heaven that detect sin? Never, never in a million, billion, jillion years. But exactly because Paul is so emphatic not just in verses 8 and 9, but all through verses 1 through 9, that our salvation is God's work alone because he alone can make a dead person rise again, both spiritually and physically. I think it warrants its own sermon to talk about how our, our works, the things that we do, how that fits into a life of faith. Now, as I said last week, we can fall into a trap on the one hand of thinking that while we are saved by grace, okay, I get it, God paid the price, I'm in, but now to stay in, we need to do good works in order to stay saved. And we can call that ditch legalism. The idea that, uh, yeah, we're saved now, but we, to, to stay saved, we got to keep doing the right thing, we got to keep obeying, we can't disobey, we can't screw up, or else we'll lose our salvation. On the other hand, we could also think that since we are saved by grace, it doesn't matter if we sin after we become Christians, because grace covers all my sins, past, present, and future. Isn't that true? Well, yes, that is true. But that kind of presumption upon God's grace is called antinomianism. Antinomianism means against law. That is to say, against any sense that we need to keep or obey a law. So we have these two ditches, legalism on the one hand, antinomianism on the other. However, Christians are to avoid falling into either ditch. We are saved by God's good grace to do good works of grace for God. Or another way, a simple way to save is Good works cannot create true faith, but true faith creates good works. And that's the sense of James. In James 2, you might have read and thought, hold on, this, is, you know, this sounds like we're saved by grace, we're justified by work, or saved by works, we're justified by works. But James is only saying what Jesus said uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, both in Matthew 5, which you read earlier, but also Matthew 7, when Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruits. So a fig tree produces fig, uh, fig fruits. Well, what does a true Christian produce? Christian fruits. There's nothing about that that's legalistic. It's not legalistic um, if an apple tree produces apples. That's just what it does a true apple tree. So a true Christian, they produce true works. Now, as simple as that is, I think we'll find in Ephesians 2.10 a lot of encouragements about what it means then to be a Christian who is doing good works. Let me read it for you, and then we'll break it down. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word for workmanship, the, the verbal root, it's a noun, but the verb root of this Greek word is to make, to produce, to create. So when you use it as a noun, it refers to the thing that you made, the thing that you produced, the thing that you created, or you could call it your handiwork. So you think of a carpenter making this very ornate table or uh, or dresser and all the carvings on it, or you can think of a sculptor or an artist creating a work of art. That is a handiwork. That is a workmanship. And we, this is not just the work of, say, a child or a novice, someone who's new at making sculptures, but this is the product of a master craftsman or a master artist who is displaying his or her full skill and ability and creativity in that thing that she has made. This Greek word in English, if you heard it in English, would be this, poema. And we get the English word poem from it. Well, how did that happen? Why, that, that sounds like an odd connection. Well, the word, you know, words change meaning over years, and this word which Came, started out as meaning something maybe you create or craft, you know, very carefully. It started to be applied to literary art, not just, say, physical art or visual arts, but uh, written art, which is poetry. And so the words poetry and poem come from this same Greek word. So um, the idea in any case is that there's an art and craft to how God made us and saved us. His personal fingerprint is on each one of us. And like a poem doesn't write itself or a building doesn't build itself, our salvation is not by our own doing, not by our own plan or power. It was carefully, meticulously crafted by him to be this wonderful, beautiful representation of God's skill and ability as a craftsman, as an artist. This word is only used one other time. It's in Romans chapter 1. If you want to turn there, you can. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Romans 1, 20, Paul writes, For his, that's God's, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the poema, the things that have been made. That's his workmanship, his, his handiwork. So you get this idea that Paul is making an argument that since the beginning of time, the beginning of creation, Genesis chapter 1, God has communicated his glory, his divine attributes, his, um, his divine nature, his power. He has been demonstrating it and showing it through the creation, through this very carefully crafted uh, beautifully and wisely designed order to the universe. So when you marvel at all the divine designs that we see in nature, when we appreciate the laws of physics, when we see uh, a rainbow, or we marvel at the sun, moon, and stars, or we see the smallest creature performing its duty, or we see a spider web, we're seeing God's poema, his handiwork, which tells us about God and his eternal attributes. 
noted creationist Henry Morris. And I, I, wanna, I wish I could quote the person that was quoting this, but the person that, made, or that quoted Henry Morris was anonymous. So whoever you are, thank you for finding this quote. But um, Henry Morris says of the word poema, God has written two poetic masterpieces, as it were, one in the physical creation, one in the lives of men and women redeemed and saved by his grace. Both give eloquent testimony to the eternal power and Godhead of the creator-redeemer. We are God's masterpiece. Just as glorious and wonderful as any, your favorite place to go or take a walk or a hike or your favorite uh, natural wonder, that is what we are. But in regards to God's salvation and his saving power, his redeeming grace, his mercy, his love, his kindness. Now, it's interesting that Paul in Ephesians 2.10 goes, he says, for we are his workmanship. Whereas prior, remember, by grace you have been saved um, through faith, not of your own doing, it's the result of God, uh, and so on. So it's you, you, you. But then in verse 10, he says, we are his workmanship. Paul is remembering his own testimony, his own salvation by grace. Remember, who was Paul? He was a, he was a Christian persecutor. He was there at the first Christian death or martyrdom, he was there approving of it. He was on the way to arrest more Christians when God stopped him on the road to Damascus and confronted his, his, his life, and he got saved by this act of God. And this is what he says about it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12 through 16, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who want to believe in him or who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul, thinking about the testimony of the Ephesians, each life, each, each Christian is this handiwork of God, his workmanship a testimony to God's grace, mercy, and patience, and he thinks of his own, for we are his workmanship. He thinks of how he used to be this God-hating, Christian-hating persecutor, but in order to display, in order to show, in order to demonstrate, just like the creation demonstrates God's eternal attributes, Paul said, in order to display his mercy, his patience, his kindness, he saved me, the chief, the foremost of sinners. In the same way, then, you might think your life is pretty messed up or that you've made a lot of mistakes or that God couldn't possibly use you because of all the things that have have happened to you. You are God's workmanship. 
God saved us and made us the way we are, including our past, our experiences, and even the sin that has happened to us. Not that God made us sin or, or sinned against anyone, but part of what makes Paul such a tremendous example of God's grace is that Paul committed some pretty grievous sins. God made you. And if you believe that Jesus saved you from your sins by dying on the cross and rising again, you are his workmanship, intended to display his glory, his patience, his mercy, his faithfulness, his love. And if you are a perfect person in a perfect circumstance, he wouldn't be able to show those things in your life. And so we have the struggles that we have. Whatever sins you've committed and mistakes you've made and things that have gone on, God did not make a mistake when he crafted you. It's to suggest that the master craftsman could mess up his creation. And that he's, what, trying to cover it up? He screwed up when he was making just you. Everyone else is okay, but just you. He messed up, and now he's scrambling to, you know, correct this, uh, this mistake. I don't know if you remember that, um, that, that, that museum work that uh, this person had accidentally messed up and tried to fix as a portrait of, I think it was Jesus, and basically put like a, you know, a smiley face on him. Do you remember that? Okay, maybe you don't. It's, I'll show it to you after when you find me. But, you know, this, this person at a museum, this very famous painting, um, I believe it was a woman, I don't remember, um, but she had accidentally smudge it or, or messed up, maybe trying to restore it, and essentially just blurred it out and just like two dots and a smiley face. I mean, God doesn't do that with people. You might think things are pretty messed up right now, but God does not make mistakes. He's a master craftsman, and when he crafted you in your salvation, he did it in a perfect way to display his patience, his mercy, his faithfulness, his love. Johnny Erickson Tata said, God, and she, was a, she was, had an accident as a teenager, became a quadriplegic, can barely move her, her arms. Um, she's a believer, but she's been in a wheelchair for you know, decades of her life. She said this, God has a plan and purpose for my time on earth. He is the master artist or sculptor, and he is the one who chooses the tools he will use to perfect his workmanship. What of suffering then? What of illness? What of disability? Am I to tell him which tools he can use and which tools he can't use in the lifelong task of perfecting me and molding me into the beautiful image of Jesus? Do I really know better than him so that I can state without equivocation that it's always his will to heal me of every physical affliction? If I am his poem, do I have the right to say, no, Lord, you need to trim line number two and brighten up lines three and five. That's just a little bit dark. Do I, the poem, the thing being written, know more than the poet? It's a very humble position to take for a woman who has been in a wheelchair for like 50 years of her life, had her young adulthood you know, stripped away from her in her own thinking. And yet she sees it rightly. God is the one who is the craftsman. We are his workmanship, and we can trust that he does not make mistakes. God made us who we are. But we are not a workmanship 
like a statue of marble that just sits there coldly somewhere in a museum. We are made for something, to do something. And that's what Paul says next, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are carefully crafted in order to do good works. Sometimes the phrase good works can almost seem like a bad word, especially when we're making such an emphasis on being saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. But you just have to get the direction right. We are not saved by doing good works. It's the the saved person shows they're saved by their good works. Like, I'm not very good with um, horticulture, so we'll go on walks sometimes in our neighborhood, and there's different trees. And Catherine, just looking at, like, the leaves, she can say, oh, that's this kind of tree. You know the only way I can tell what kind of tree it is? Me? If there's an apple on it, then I say, hey, look, an apple tree. <laughs> hey, look, that's a grapefruit tree. I'll tell you exactly what it is, even though I'm not a horticulturist, but you get the point, right? Like, you know for sure what kind of tree it is once it starts putting out that fruit. You're not, I'm not going to mistake an orange tree for an apple tree. You might mistake a, like a lime tree for a you know, tangelo or something like that. But y- y- you know when you see the fruit exactly what kind of tree that, that, that tree is. And that's all that, that the Bible is saying. It's not ever that we are saved by the fruit. It's that a true faith will produce these good works. Now, we're going to help identify this. I, I think I still feel uncomfortable when we talk about good works, so we need to identify this because he's making a very bold claim here, right? He's making a bold claim. We are actually created for good works. You know, all that talk we just made about where his workmanship and his handiwork is carefully crafting us, but he's crafting us not just as a, a thing that is the object of his doing. You know, we just sit there passively and we let him, you know, work on us. No, we are being crafted while simultaneously being called to be something and do something in the world. That's what we should be doing. We need to understand what makes something we do good then. That's the real trouble here is what do we mean by good works? That's where that phrase, in Christ Jesus, is helpful. Good works are produced only by those who are in Christ Jesus, those whose lives have been saved and transformed by the gospel. Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, lived a perfect life, the one you cannot live. He died to take our place bearing the consequences of our sin, which is death. He died and rose again on on the behalf of sinners. You believe that, you're a Christian. But only those who believe that can do good works. Buddhists can do nice things for other people. I've experienced that. Mormons, atheists, Hindus, Muslims, I'd be resentful and unkind to neglect the good things that people who are not Christians have done for me and for others. In fact, some of the works they do look exactly the same as things Christians do. Christians aren't the only ones who build homes in impoverished areas. Christians aren't the only ones who travel to foreign countries to give medical aid. Christians aren't the only ones who will help push a car when you get a flat or you run out of gas. 
It's not just Christians who do that. And I'd be very blind and ignorant to say, you know, no, I've never had any good thing happen to me from someone who wasn't a Christian. No, that's not the point. What is good? Remember how Jesus responded to the man who ran up to him saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response was, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's in Mark chapter 10. Now, this is not Jesus denying that he's God or anything like that, but he's trying to reveal exactly that this man didn't really know what being good meant. Because, for one thing, he thought that by doing good things, he could inherit eternal life. That was the presumption, as you see the conversation go on. But see, Jesus doesn't, the man doesn't even realize he's been already confronted in his heart just by that single question. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. He's already been um, called out on his wrong view. You don't know what good is. God is the definition of good. To be good, you have to be like God. For anything to be good, it needs to be godly. That's what makes a work good. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, which being read earlier, you know, I've read that verse so many times and, um, you know, haven't memorized and all these things, but even just sitting here listening to being uh, read it again, I just um, was again just refreshed by the passage. In verse 13, he says, you're the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's not good for anything. So salt is salt, and it makes things salty. That's just what it is and what it does, right? Christians are Christianly, and we do Christian things. It is who we are. It's what we do. Just like salt is just salting things, Christians, you just Christian things, you could say. It, it's that simple. True faith produces true good works, true godly works. But I just, it just not that it, I've never thought that before, but it just hit me again as, as Bing was reading it. Um, but here in the second half of that uh, passage, in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Paul, James, when they talk about good works, they're not saying anything different than what Christ himself taught and believed and that has not been already said in many, many ways prior. What Jesus is saying is that good works are those things that glorify God. Good works have the goal of glorifying God. A good work is that which a person who has put his or her faith in God, does for the purpose of glorifying God. Or we could say it like this. Anything we do as Christians for God's glory is a good work. That includes obvious things like charity, which we saw in James, if you see your brother in need, but all you say is, you know, go in peace, be warm, be filled. What, is, what good is that? If you don't help them. So obvious things like charity, but Paul even talks about whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 
31. So even eating and drinking, these very mundane, everyday things, can be something that glorifies God. That would make it a good work. In fact, in Colossians 3.17, Paul says, whatever you do, do it in the name of Christ and with thankfulness to God. Everything that you do in the name of Christ with thankfulness to God is a good work. On the flip side, anything we do selfishly or for our own glory, or for the glory of someone else or something else, no matter how much it might seem to benefit and help them, it can't be considered good in the ultimate sense because it's not being done to glorify the God who saved us by his grace. It's not being done to glorify God who is good. God is the definition of good. How can it be a good work if it does not honor, recognize, acknowledge, glorify God. doesn't matter how many billions you donate to whatever cause it is. It is not good if it doesn't ultimately glorify God. That's why we can acknowledge that, you know, a Muslim doctor going to treat malaria patients in a poor country, yes, that's, that's helpful. That, that's kind. That, you know, that's good in a just very secular sense, in the sense that someone is being benefited by it. But it's not a truly good work if it isn't glorifying Jesus. And by the same token, if a Christian doctor went to Africa to help Ebola patients, but uh, you know, she was doing it to impress her parents and her friends back home, it's not truly a good work either because she wasn't doing it to glorify God, but herself, even as a Christian. You see, it doesn't, what makes it good is who is getting the glory for it not necessarily the actual thing being done. Now, obviously, you can't do a wicked thing that would dishonor God by nature. So you can't ever sin to the glory of God because sin, by its definition, doesn't glorify God. But everything else that we do, from the, the, the color of the socks that you choose, yes, that can glorify God. That can be a good work if you're thankful and believe you don't deserve socks to wear because there are people who don't have socks to wear today. That can honor God. That can be a good work. If you tell your kids, be thankful for the socks on your feet. There are people who have so little in this life. Be thankful. You're doing a good work for your children, showing them how to glorify and honor God. Even when the Israelites gave lip service to God while supposedly doing the right thing, didn't mean they were doing good works because God knows the heart. Jesus is quoting Isaiah but he said, this people, the Jewish people, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Worship should be a good work. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, but instead they had turned it into something that glorified themselves. So it was not a good work. It did not honor God because God looks at the heart. He looks at the motives as well. So what makes a, a work good is that it is in Christ Jesus. That's why it's not a bad word. It's something that is by nature something that glorifies God and, and not you. And you're made for that. You're made to glorify God. So yes, you're made for good works. But Paul continues on in Ephesians to say, to, to absolutely drive home the point that you can't ever boast in this either. Just like grace, you can't boast in it. You can't take any credit for it. Because how could you take credit for doing something as, as holy and good as glorifying God 
with your life, he says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. To walk in something is just an expression and using the Bible frequently just to mean how you live your life daily, your, your walk, all right? So it is just a reference to how you live your life. But he's saying that every good work that you've ever done is something that God had already planned for you to do beforehand. And you're just kind of stepping in them. You're just walking a path that God had lined up already. And, and again, like we can get all wound up about predestination and what does that mean? Do I have free will and all that? Just understand, the point of it, the point of it is just to say you don't get the glory. It's not to make a big, really, it's not to make a big debate about, um, you know, when, well, you know, if, if God prepared these good works before him, can I, can I choose to not do them? And you get wound up about, you know, paradoxes and things. All, all Paul's trying to communicate, and God through Paul, is you can't take credit for it. Because if you took credit for a good work, who gets the glory? You do. So just by nature of it, these are things that God must have done already so that he gets all of the glory. We are to regularly live our life as God's workmanship, doing good works in Christ Jesus. But even that is just a part of his predetermined plan. Even that is a part of his master craftsman work in our lives. Just as it is God's grace that grants us the salvation we don't earn, God's grace also grants us a God-honoring life to live. If God is the one who graciously plans and accomplishes our salvation, doesn't it make sense that he also graciously plans for our new life in Christ as well to honor him? And so we understand a little better how God intends to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's verse 7. It's in part through our lives being used by God to demonstrate his power. Precisely, precisely by using sinners who've been saved by grace to accomplish his plan. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2 happens to use this phrase, good works, many, many times. And it gives you a really good picture of, of, of what that means in the connection to grace. Especially Titus 2, 11 through 14. This is one of my favorite passages because it's challenging to me. Because <laughs> so often we associate grace with a certain amount of like um, free, being free from burden, which is true. But it's not free from responsibility. <laughs> Titus 2.11 starts this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And he's meeting in Jesus Christ in his gospel. But what does this grace do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So grace isn't just a get-out-of-jail-free card. Grace is the promise of sanctification, like we're talking about with the kids. Grace is the very means by which we can pursue holiness. 
It's grace is the means by which the Holy Spirit operates in our life. And you can almost make it synonymous here that it is the Holy Spirit working in us to do these things. But I love the idea of grace training us. It's like Rocky with his coach working hard at the gym. Grace is a coach that is constantly not just saying, you're forgiven. I know you messed up, but God forgives you. Look at the cross. Grace isn't just that. It it is also that which teaches us to be more like him, which trains us to renounce the worldly things in our lives and the worldly things around us, our interactions with the world. You can read on Titus 3 through 1 through 14. We'll do that for sake of time, but Titus 3, 1 through 14, you will see good works come up three more times in the context of us. What are we supposed to do in our lives? Well, in our interactions with the world, you need to be, um, well, this one warrants, I think, reading just uh, 3, 1 through 3. We'll remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, and so on. Do you see, like, good works show the world that we have been saved by grace. And so when we treat these despotic rulers and authorities with submission and obedience, again, not contrary to anything biblical, we're showing a good work that shows we are saved by grace. When we choose to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people, when we're in the midst of a very polarized society and culture right now, when we choose instead to do this good work of not just being just as hostile and antagonistic as everyone wants you to be, you're showing that God saves sinners by grace. That good work is showing people grace is working in you. Grace is a real thing that changes lives. Good works are the fruit of a real faith. True fruit faith produces true works. It's not some scandalous thing to talk about good works. Instead, it is the very thing that Jesus wanted for us. Your light, your city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Grace has been given to us And this grace is crafting us to be more like him. And so we walk in that which God is is planning for us so that he gets all of the glory. We cannot boast in it. It's almost, I like the imagery of walking because um, it's it's talking just about something so natural that you do in life, of course, for, for most people. I understand some um, are in wheelchairs like Johnny Erickson Tata and, and others. But when you just talk about going through your average day, Paul is suggesting 
that there's good works all around for you to trip up on. I mean, that, that's almost kind of the way I, I think of it is, is uh, good works are lying everywhere for me to do. If I would just open my eyes and see the opportunity. It could be small things, it could be big things, but anything that glorifies God is a good work that we can do for his glory, not for myself. Do we have that kind of attitude? Do we have that kind of heart where we're willing to open our eyes and see what, what are some good works that I can stumble upon today? What are some good works that God has set before me to walk in and to do? What are some things in my life that um, God, you, you, you know my heart, you know why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it for you. It's not a good work. I'm coming to church, but um, it's, I'm dragging my feet. I just feel like it's something, you know, it's just to make the spouse happy. That's not a good work. It's not glorifying God. You're here, but it's not a good work. What are some areas in your own heart and life where you know you're not glorifying God in areas where you should be? These are not sinful or wrong questions to ask because, oh, you can't be saved by your works. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a true faith that produces true good works. If you're not a Christian today, you do very much need to get the message that no matter what things you think you have done to, to make others think you're a good person or to make yourself think you're a good person, if you are not honoring God with your life, if you have not submitted to him fully, you, you, you cannot earn your way into God's favor or his presence. He is not someone that can be uh, cheaply bought by a few good things that you did. He's not a, he can't be bribed. Your good works cannot commend you to God. He's not going to answer your prayers just because you did a few nice things or you donated some money to this charity. God is only pleased by one thing, perfect righteousness and holiness. And that is something only Jesus Christ has ever accomplished. And so you need to put your faith in him, in Jesus alone for your salvation, because he died, rose again for your sins. So come to him. Come to him, plead with him, and he will hear you. On the basis of faith, ask for forgiveness, and he will forgive. If you have any questions about that, please come talk to me. Um, come, come talk to, to, to Bing or, or Pastor Chris or your friend, whoever brought you here. So if you're watching this on the internet, I guess you need to say that now. You send an email you know, to the church. But we want to tell you more about this Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that you've given. Thank you, Lord, that we can somehow even grow in our faith and be useful to you by doing these good works that you've prepared beforehand for us. I, I pray, Lord, that no matter what we've been through in life, we wouldn't ever consider ourselves too damaged, too broken, um, too, too um, hurt by, by the things of this world to be of any use to you. Lord, that's not true. Um, you are the one who's crafting this. This is, um, this is your work that you are doing. And so, Lord, I pray that in our hearts we'd be encouraged walk in obedience to these commands. So look for ways we can be doing these good works even as soon as this prayer is over. And we go and enjoy some time together, Lord. Put it in our hearts by your Spirit's power um, to know what are some of the good works that we can be, be doing as an evidence of our faith. But Lord, help us again in, in our distress, in our um, sin, and in our trial um, to, to know that there is grace abundant for forgiveness and for training in righteousness. Thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.